0: You know, you know how you do when you're in university, you dismiss what you'd like to do and you think, Oh, what could I do with a good degree in, you know, political science, which is what I have. But you know, you always come back to your loves, I think. And I'd always wanted to write and I'd always wanted to write mysteries. So, you know, it took me a while, but I, I did get there.
1: Welcome to the Toronto International Festival of Authors and this special episode of Kobo and Conversation, which is normally a podcast that you listen to after we record it. But today we are on video and we're coming to you live, which means that we have the opportunity to take your questions. So look for the chat options to send them to us and I'll save them up for the end. My name is Michael Tamlin. I'm the CEO of the ebook and audio bookseller, Rakuten Kobo and the host of Kobo and Conversation. And I'm joined by my guest, Sherry LePena author of the new novel, Not a Happy Family. Thriller fans know her as the author of a string of unsettling domestic thrillers that started with her 2016 international bestseller, The Couple Next Door. She and I are going to talk about the new book, Not a Happy Family, the arc of her writing career, which started well before she emerged in the thriller scene in 2016. And we'll talk about the books that shaped her along the way. Sherry Lepeña, welcome to Coburn Conversation and to the Toronto International Festival of Authors.
0: Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here.
1: To get us started, I'd like to ask you to read a passage from "Not a Happy Family," so we can get a flavor of what we're going to be talking about.
0: Sure. I'm going to read from the prologue because, um, you know, with thrillers, it's really hard to dip in anywhere <laughs> other than right at the very beginning without uh, risking a spoiler. There are many expensive houses here in Brecon Hill, an enclave on the edge of Aylesford in the Hudson Valley. Situated on the east side of the Hudson River, about 100 miles north of New York City, it's like the Hamptons, but slightly less pretentious. There's old money here and new. Down the long private drive, past a clump of birches, there it sits, the Merton home, on its vast expanse of lawn, presented like a cake on a platter a glimpse of swimming pool to the left. Behind is a ravine and thick trees on either side of the property guarantee privacy. This is prime real estate. It's so still and undisturbed. A weak sun is out and some scudding clouds. It's four o'clock in the afternoon on Easter Monday. Elsewhere, children are greedily finishing off their chocolate bunnies and foil-wrapped eggs, gauging what's left and eyeing how much remains in the baskets of their siblings that there are no children here. The children have grown up and moved away. Not far, mind you. They were all over just yesterday for Easter Sunday dinner. The place looks deserted. There are no cars in the driveway. They are shut away behind the doors of the four car garage. There's a Porsche 911 convertible. Fred Merton likes to drive that one, but only in the summer when he throws his golf clubs in the back. For winter, he prefers the Lexus. His wife, Sheila, has her white Mercedes with the white leather interior. She likes to put on one of her many colourful Hermes scarves, check her lipstick in the rear view mirror and go out to meet friends. She won't be doing that anymore. A house this grand, this polished, glossy white marble floor beneath an elaborate tiered chandelier in the entryway, fresh flowers on a side table. You'd think there must be staff for upkeep. But there's only one cleaning lady, Irena who comes in twice a week. She works hard for the money, but she's been with them so long, more than 30 years, that she's almost like family. It must have looked perfect before all this. A trail of blood leads up the pale carpeted stairs. To the left in the lovely living room, a large china lamp is lying broken on the Persian rug, its shade askew. A little farther along, beyond the low glass coffee table, is Sheila Merton in her nightclothes utterly still. She's dead, her eyes open, and there are marks on her neck. There's no blood on her, but the sickening smell of it is everywhere. Something awful has happened here. In the large, bright kitchen at the back of the house, Fred Merton's body lies sprawled on the floor in a dark and viscous pool of blood. Flies buzz quietly around his nose and mouth. He's been viciously stabbed many, many times, his fleshy throat slit. Who would do
1: such a thing? <laughs> who indeed? Uh-huh. And, so, and so, to set this stage of characters, we have met the now, um, the now departed Fred Merton, a tyrant patriarch and businessman, and his wife Sheila Merton, wife and mother. What were who we're going to meet in the next couple of chapters are. Catherine, the eldest daughter, a doctor who's been hurt by her father, her husband, Ted, Dan, the middle son in financial trouble, whose business ambitions have been thwarted by his father, his wife, Lisa, and Jenna, the youngest artist in New York, who hasn't quite made it, her boyfriend, and the housekeeper, Irina. This is the not happy family in Not a Happy Family. And mm-hmm. after a very unhappy Easter dinner, Fred and Sheila are found murdered and that's where your wheels start to turn. What is the seed, the kernel of a book like this for you? Where do you start from?
0: I always start with um, a basic idea, something that gets me going and excited. So for this one, I really, I've been doing a lot of domestic suspense that focus on husband and wife couples. And I knew I wanted to branch out a bit. And what I really wanted to look at was adult siblings, because I think adult siblings are are very interesting. They carry all sorts of um, baggage from childhood on. And uh, really, if you're gonna have sibling um, friction, I think the best way to go about that is is money. Um, And to to have that, I had to have a wealthy uh, couple of parents die and then I had a lovely set of um, suspects all ready for me. And they all, of course, have secrets of their own. And, you know, it's it's really horrible to think of, of kids killing their parents. So it has an automatic um, hook for me. The idea of, you know, one of these kids might have killed their parents. And then the idea of the other siblings suspecting each other and and maybe trying to hide something of their own. And I just thought it would be a lovely sort of nest of vipers to explore.
1: The death of wealthy couples followed by siblings at war is something that actually happens in real life from time to time. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. and we have a few collections of rich siblings who are at war right now. Uh, Do you keep an eye on, on the news, on nonfiction for seeds of a story or do you try to keep your head clear of them?
0: You know, I can't avoid being um, aware of various cases, things in the news, and sometimes it gets sparked by things that I see or read, but I try to keep away from anything that's based anywhere remotely on reality because I don't want to get myself into trouble. But, um, you know, there have been cases in the past where kids have murdered their parents, um, and it's always fascinating to me. So um, I, I just found the whole idea quite enthralling. Um, and I, like I said, I wanted to get away from the, the simply um, husband-wife dynamic, but it did creep in. Like I, I, I really enjoy mm-hmm. the dynamic between husband and wife. And so each of the siblings um, that are married, there's two of them that are married, you know, the suspicion mounts between the, the, the sibling and the, the spouse. And um, I can't seem to get away from that. I just really enjoy it. But I also, but I particularly enjoyed the relationship among the three siblings in this book. And of course, there's another sort of surprise in there about another potential sibling. And there's, you know, other various suspects and so on. Like, there always are with me. But uh, yeah, that's the kernel of it.
1: For some authors of Mystery and Suspense, characters are born of necessity. You know, I need a person like this who can then do these things to advance the the plot that I've devised. And for Mm -hmm. other authors, the characters come first and are set into motion. You know, the plot goes where they go. How did your cast of characters come together for you?
0: Mine always are the same. That, that, so I don't start with a plot. I just start with an idea, and I, I I've never been able to plan out a novel like some people. So I can't um, I can't sort of plan and see the ending like some people. Although I, I say that with the revisal that the, the the book that I'm working on now, book seven. I do kind of see the ending and I hope that doesn't mess me completely up with this book because I've never, (laughs) ever worked that way before. We'll wait for it and we'll let you know. (laughs) It's making me nervous. Um, So generally I just start with an idea and I don't have the characters in mind either except as, you know, in this situation I knew there had to be a wealthy couple that had to die. I knew that I wanted at least three siblings, maybe four, and I knew that they had to be very different striking personalities that would play off each other in different ways. And I knew there had to be the housekeeper that would be sort of a pseudo mother figure. Um, But I don't have a clear idea of who the characters are, except in this case, I knew that I wanted to make the father a possible psychopath. And I I sort of wanted to make him one of those self-made billionaire men who might be a psychopath. Um, You know, you hear about them in business and politics, and they have all the traits of of a psychopath. And I thought, that's what I want here. I want to have... a a patriarch like that and then I want to have that sort of taint sort of possibly emerge in the children and we don't know whether it's genetic or we don't know whether it's the way they were brought up because it was a strange upbringing but um, I always love that question of how a psychopath is you know whether they're born or made it's just a fun question for me Mm -hmm. and there's you know various levels of various degrees of psychopathy in each of the kids and I had a lot of fun you know playing with that because that's just the way I work. But um, so when I started out, all I knew was um, the dad would be a psychopath and um, I didn't know anything else and I didn't really know what would happen. I just knew that the police would suspect all the kids. So as the story went on, everybody took on their characters. So um, it was just as I was writing her that Catherine became the conservative older, you know, the firstborns generally the the sort of more conservative one. And she became a doctor and a pleaser. and someone who liked money and, and comfort, all nice things, and wanted the house. And then Dan, you know, he just came to me as sort of a loser, sort of someone who had been picked on by his father because he was the only son and he hadn't measured up. And then I got into the question of, did he not measure up or did, did the dad set him up to fail? So there's always sort of two sides to, to questions, like how much is created by bad parenting? How much is How much does the kid bring to the table? How much did his dad undermine him? How much does he resent his dad for it so all the characters and the plot with me come together and build as the story goes on and i don't really know where it's ever going to go um at least that's always the way i've worked so far so yeah i don't really have anything in mind when i start i start with a fresh page and i I make it up as I go along and i hope for the best and it's served me well so far i'll let you know you know maybe next year if this other book doesn't work out because um yeah knowing where it's going, just, it's kind of throwing me a little.
1: Well, it's, it's refreshing because I think there is this perception of authors of mystery and suspense who are like master mechanics. You know, they've got a wall in their house with timelines and strings and arrows pointing to pictures, uh, (laughs) carefully, you know, planning and assembling these Swiss watches of plot and character, but clearly it, it doesn't have to be that way. Working the way that you do do you ever find yourself painted into corners or into you know, into a dead end, and then you've got to go? Okay, we all got here together. How are we? How are we moving forward?
0: Just once, once when I was writing the unwanted guest, which was a, my only closed room mystery, and you know I've said before I'll never do another one. I found they're very difficult to do. Um, that was a, a story where there are a bunch of um, guests at a hotel, a dozen people and there's a snowstorm, and they're trapped, and, you know, it's it's uh, inspired by the Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none, and it was a really fun book. The bodies were dropping, you know, one by one, and, and you were trying to figure out who of the remaining people was killing the others, and I, sort of, around the middle point, I realized I'd got myself in a corner because I couldn't, the way I'd done it, I had the wrong people dying at the wrong time. I couldn't have people seeing what they were seeing. It's complicated, so... I had to change the order of the murders um, and then it worked out and I had to change the method of the murders. That was a complicated book to write. So, um, but generally I have an open-ended sprawling book where I just kind of go and I don't run into those kinds of problems. I, I don't think I've ever put myself into a corner ever with my wide open books. It's just that one closed room story that I
1: had a problem with. And so how far ahead can you see? Are you, are you kind of a, a chapter or, or two in front of the events on the page?
0: Sometimes not even that I am, um, I get inspired, like I tend to write short chapters and I tend to switch among multiple points of view. And I find that gives me a lot of energy and I love to be inside my character's points of point of view. So when I start to flag, I'll switch point of view and then I get another take on the situation. And then I kind of, I get re-energized. But, you know, to go back to something we said earlier about, you know, we we picture um, mystery writers as having a big wall with like lines and yarn running from points. Well,
1: I Maybe didn't that's just me.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. But lots of writers work that way. And I, I did an event once with Claire Macintosh, and I told her, that, you know, how I worked. And she goes, oh my God, Sherry, you have to get a murder wall, you know, because she used to be a policeman. And so, you know, I was supposed to have this murder wall with post-its and, you know, pictures of the weapon and the pictures of the person's face that died and all that stuff. So I said to my daughter at the time, I need a murder wall. So I went out and I bought a big piece of white paper and she took it into the backyard. She spattered red paint all over it. And then I put it up on the wall and then I sat there and I looked at it and I got out my little stickies and I, I couldn't think of anything. Like I, I couldn't think of, anything that would happen. I couldn't think of anything about my characters. It was just a complete waste of my time. So what happens is one thing leads to another, which leads to another, a character does something. And then that affects the plot. And that makes someone else react in a certain way. And I, and I do the same with my characters. Like I, I don't know who they are. And I don't have lists of their characteristics and how they take their coffee or anything like that. I just, I take my characters and I put them into a situation of conflict. And I see what they do. So in this case, and not a happy family, I knew that the parents were murdered on uh, Easter Sunday night after dinner. So I murdered them first. And then I went back to the dinner. And I just started with the the siblings all getting ready for dinner. And that's when I found out that, you know, Catherine's husband resented having to go for dinner and, you know, um, the tension there. And I found out that the artist, Jenna, was actually a bit of a quite a wild child. And, you um, you know, and and this whole idea of Dan's afraid to ask his dad for money that night. So it, it all just it all just happens as I write it. Believe it or not, that's how I do it. Yeah, and I'm not the only one. There are other there are others. Yeah.
1: There needs to be an Instagram feed somewhere of the the murder walls of of <laughs> authors, because <laughs> that really that would be idea. illuminating. Someone yeah. has to do that. Yeah. Most readers first got to know you from The Couple Next Door, which, if they have not read it, is a nail-biting story about two parents, a missing baby, and a web of secrets and revelations that spread out from making one small mistake. But that's not your first book. You published two novels about a decade ago, Things Go Flying and Happiness Economics. And there are two remarkable things that I'll I'll call out about them. First is they were both nominated for prizes, Things Go Flying for a Sunburst Award and Happiness Economics, nominated for a Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. And the second is that both of these books are surprisingly light on murdering or kidnapping, or slowly growing feelings of dread and suspicion. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this audience in thinking that if Stephen Leacock had a little more time for premeditated murder, I might have a little more time for Stephen Leacock. Um, But we we have this five-year gap where on one side we have Happiness Economics with its gentle comedy about poets in midlife crisis, and then on the other side, the couple next door with a baby missing or kidnapped and parents in a pressure cooker of guilt and suspicion. So tell me all about what happened in those five years that started with you as a writer of comic fiction and ended with you delivering your first bestseller of a domestic thriller.
0: Ah, You're probably thinking it was involved in some murder somewhere, but that's, <laughs> that's not the case. Um, I think what happened was, when I started to want to write seriously, I was I was home with a baby and I didn't have any idea what I wanted to write. So I just sat down one day and I I imagined this character and it was things go flying, it was Harold, and he was depressed. Uh, very, very cliche when you think about it. You start off with a character, middle-aged character is depressed about um getting older and dying. And but I found that he um he actually he wasn't afraid of dying. He was more afraid that life would go on forever after he died. So he was really tortured by this idea that he might have to go on in this depressed state for millennium. So he went to see, he didn't want to go see a psychologist because he thought that he just wasn't something he would do. So he went to see a philosopher to help him through this crisis he was having. But, you know, in the meantime, there's there's, there's all sorts of other things going on. Anyway, to make a long story short, I couldn't plot for beans. But as I wrote Harold, And I found out why he was depressed and why he was so anxious. It was because his wife um, had been with his best friend who had recently died. And anyway, it was very complicated and and quite funny. And as I went on and the story all came together and I came out with this lovely little um, rounded book that worked as a plot. And I was astonished that I was able to do that because um, I'd only ever been able to write, you know, like you write your page or your scene, but to write a story, like a fully realized novel. a completely different thing i mean it's a complete structure um so i I tell you know beginning writers you know who write and 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 sort of um what's the word dabble not dribble when they dabble in in writing fiction i think it's if you want to write novels i think it's really important to write the entire thing beginning middle and end the whole structure because that's where you learn you know how to do it Anyway, I did that and then I thought, wow, awesome. And then I thought, can I do it again? And so I did and I wrote Happiness Economics. But the thing is, my favorite genre is mystery um, and thriller. So I'd always wanted to write a thriller, but, you know, silly me, I always thought a thriller uh, had to be plotted ahead. I thought, you, you know, they're so intricate and they're so based on plot that I thought that you had to have every little thing figured out on the murder wall before you could begin um, and my my um, comedic novels were never, they weren't particularly plot driven, but they certainly had plots, but they were more character and question driven and all that stuff. So I guess I started with literary fiction because I thought it was more plotless and I thought I could maybe get away with it. Um, and then once i would written a couple of those, you know, I wanted to write a thriller, but I still didn't um, think that I would be able to pull it off because I didn't know how to plot and. I know that thrillers are very plot-centered, um, so I decided that I would write a thriller in secret, and I wouldn't tell anybody, and that would give me freedom. You know, I didn't tell my agent, I didn't tell my husband, I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I was ostensibly working on a third literary novel, third comic novel, and um, I wrote it in six months, and I had a blast. Like I totally, totally liked that world and being in that kind of tension. Um, and I just thought one day, Oh, what if, what if someone left their baby at home and took the monitor, like what a stupid thing to do and what terrible things might happen. And I thought, Oh, that's a great idea. And then I just got really excited about it. And, you know, I sat down and it was right away. It was like, well, maybe the husband suggested they leave the baby at home and, you know, maybe, you know, and, and then it just, it just took off. And that was probably the easiest book I've ever written in my life. Um, I wrote it very, very quickly. I had a blast with it. And then when I got and I never knew it was going to happen, you know, all the twists surprised me. I, I, you know, there's a point where the husband, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's a twist fairly early on that you go, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Well, I didn't see it coming either. Um, so when I finished that novel, I thought, Oh, this isn't half bad. I I think I'll send it out. So I sent it out to a, a thriller um, agent as opposed to my regular agent and you know, she loved it and she she took it right on right away. And it, it you know, it was sold really quickly to Viking. And then it sold, you know, all over the world and was the best selling book in Britain. And, you know, it was huge for me, a really huge book for me. And it was just really different. So the funny part about this story, of course, is that I sat down and I wrote a thriller with no plan and no outline and it worked really, really well. And then I had, But I had a two book contract and I had to write another thriller.
1: And I thought, I don't know
0: how to plot a thriller. What am I going to do? You know, and I, I wasn't sure I could do it again. And so that second book, you know, they say writers always have problems with the second book and that, that dreadful second book. And I I did struggle getting going on my second book because it was, um, I wasn't sure I could do it again, but you know, I did. And now I'm comfortable with with not plotting. So that's sort of what happened. I, I, I wish I'd had the guts to try a thriller earlier, but um, I certainly enjoyed writing my comedies. Um, and I, I'm happy that I wrote them, and I'm pleased with them. But uh, I think my heart's really more in the dark domestic uh, suspense area.
1: And was it was it getting through that second book, you know, realizing that it wasn't beginner's luck that you could use your process and and your method for coming to a story uh, when you started to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm I'm getting the hang of this. This is something that I could just keep doing.
0: By the end of the second book, I thought that I I think all through the second book, I was thinking maybe I just got lucky because, you know, it's quite a thing to be um, writing comedies for a small press in Canada. And, you know, you don't make any money and you do your own promotion and you know what it's like and then to have a huge international bestseller. It's a it's a completely different world. And there was a lot of pressure on me on that second book. So. I, I, you know, it was a struggle, and and when it was done, I was really glad. I was really pleased with it. I think it's probably the best ending I've written. Was the ending to the second book, and um, then I was like, and then I thought I can I can do this in the same way. I mean, I've done four books that way. I I can keep on going, and now I never I never really worry until this book when I I know it's going to happen, and now I'm really worried because I'm afraid I'll be writing to that ending and be really dull. But so far, it's quite okay.
1: So you mentioned that. I- you had always been a mystery fan. Uh, tell me a bit about the, uh, the authors that were on your bookshelf who, who set the hook for you and made this be a genre you wanted to write in.
0: Well, you know, it started very young. I knew when I was nine. I knew consciously when I was nine that I wanted to be a writer and that I wanted to write Nancy Drew books. That was, that was my career goal was to write Nancy Drew books. And you know, I didn't think about. It's funny because I, I believed in Carolyn Keene. I thought she was a real person, and I didn't know that there were various writers that wrote the Nancy Drew books. Um, but I, I remember I was very um, interested in Nancy Drew and and read all the books. And I loved solving mysteries. And I just thought, oh, that'd be such a great life. You know, I'd love to write those. Um, and then you know, I got a little bit older, and I got into Agatha Christie, and I was just blown away by her. And I read all of her books. And um, of course I, I got older and I realized that writing was a terrible career choice and you know nobody could ever succeed as a writer and I should go be a lawyer, which is laughable because I hated being a lawyer. But um, you know, I became quite successful as a mystery writer, which is really funny because I, you know, you know how you do when you're in university, you dismiss what you'd like to do and you think, oh, what could I do with a good degree in, you know, political science, which is what I have. Um, but you know, you always come back to your loves, I think. And I'd always wanted to write and I'd always wanted to write mysteries. So, you know, it took me a while, but I I did get there. So, I, you know, I was Nancy Drew and then Agatha Christie. I, I read a lot of, you know, um, Patricia Highsmith and Josephine Tay and, you know, Daphne du Maurier and um, Phyllis Whitney and, oh, all the, you know, all the suspense writers, you mm-hmm. know, Mary Stewart, um, you know, just all the... Mystery writers. I I read them avidly. And, you know, I still do. I mean, I read more um, suspense now than I read of anything, although I do read quite widely in terms of other books as well. I read all different kinds of fiction and nonfiction. But um, yeah, I think it was quite a, I absorbed a lot of mysteries as a kid, and maybe that's been helpful.
1: Do you turn away from your favorites when you have a project underway? or do you keep reading all the way through?
0: I don't, hmm, I don't turn away. You know, I don't reread books Mm -hmm. much and that's just a function of time. I just don't have the time to read all the books. I'm a fairly slow reader, so I don't have time to go and reread favorites very often. Um, And in terms of, do I turn away? Like when I'm writing my own books, People say, people ask, you know, do you read thrillers when you're writing one? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm always writing one. I write a book a year. So I, I read I read mysteries and thrillers all the time because otherwise I wouldn't read at all. I wouldn't um but I, I won't read a book that's um, you know, if I'm afraid it's too much like mine or um yeah, but I try to write a book that's not like anyone else's. So, you know, basically I just read whatever comes in. I get I get so many books mailed to me and usually the big authors, you know, and and I'm just lucky I get to read whatever I want. Um, So I, I read quite a bit.
1: The world of thrillers has turned inwards over the last couple of decades, I would say. We still have international intrigue and murder and criminals and terrorists, but the suspense of life and death has really moved to Dinner tables, husbands and wives, and families with all of the secrets and betrayals, but in much more familiar settings. Mm-hmm. Do you? Why do you think that's become such a big part of the reading world in the last couple of decades? Uh, this, like the same tension, the same suspense, but now in places we already know.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, and and I will just, as an aside, mention it's because of that that I became. A suspense writer, because you know I'm not one to write a spy novel or, um, you know, anything with lots of, um, you know, where you have to know somebody who's ahead of a police department or ahead of a terrorist unit to to know what's going on. Um, I know families, and I, you know, I'm a housewife. I got kids, Um, so it was something that I knew and that I naturally understood. So that's sort of why I think I've become a a writer in mystery and and suspense. And to answer the question of why people like it. I just think that we're interested in, for me, I'm interested in human beings and their psychology and what's going on behind closed doors and maybe it's a bit of voyeurism. I don't know. I think we've proven over the last few years that we're quite a voyeuristic society and we're very nosy about other people and um, maybe it's that. But I think um, people can just see themselves in these situations that, you know, you can identify with what's going on. Um, I mean, even if you can't identify with not a happy family family, then um, you can at least be grateful that they're not you. Um, You know, it's familiar. And maybe maybe there's a juxtaposition between the familiar and the scary that people find interesting. I don't know. I don't know if people really know why we're drawn to these books. But I know... Um, the last few years, people have said, "Oh, the domestic suspense market's over." You know, we're going to move on to something else, but it's still super strong. Um, and there's just something about it that people love. I love it because I—it's just so intimate. It's so um, it's so intimate, and it's about relationships, which I mm-hmm. think are so interesting.
1: What do you think about that term, domestic thriller? Does that does that describe what you're trying to what you're trying to capture?
0: You know, I guess so. I I, I don't mind the domestic uh, thriller, or domestic suspense label. I don't like the suburban la- label. Like I'm not. My hmm. books aren't mm-hmm. necessarily suburban. I know I've been described as a suburban writer. I don't live in a suburb. I live in a farm. I used to live in right downtown Toronto. Um, suburbs aren't really me. I have written about suburbs, but I've also written about urban and and so on. It's with me. It's all about the relationships. It's all about the the intimate relationships because that's where people are most vulnerable and it's where people have more at stake. Um, so if you get into those intimate relationships, whether it's siblings or men and wife or parent children, um, there's always, always interesting things if you just scrape a little bit in those relationships.
1: Each new work you write is a complete self-contained world. We meet all new characters every with each new book. Are you ever tempted to create some continuity? I you know, add in a detective or a coroner or anyone to act as like a connection through the books.
0: You know, I've thought about it. And it, well, my first book had a detective, Detective Rasback, and he did show up in the second book, I think. And then I thought, well, I'm done with him. I, I don't want to get into a series. I want to make sure that I can do a standalone each time. And it's because I I think the reason is that I'm if you're if you're going to do a series, they're usually based on, as you say, a coroner or a police officer or someone who is going to come into contact with these uh, criminal situations on a regular basis. But my real interest or my real focus is really on the families affected by the crime. Mm -hmm. So you can't have, you know, the people from one of my first books. You know, careening into another situation where they're remarried and they think their husband's killing them, and then they're careening into another situation where they think their siblings killing them. You know, it's because my because my focus is on the the families who are the victims or you know um, being affected by the crime. They're not likely to have another situation like that. So it's hard to write a series with that. And I don't really want to get too much into the police end of things and Mm -hmm. um, revisit with a detective, although. Um, I did use Razback twice because I quite liked him. And then in my third book, and I want to guess, someone says, I'm so glad you brought Razback back. And I, I said, what? <laughs> there's no Razback in that book. But there's a detective that comes in um, from far away um, at the end of the book. And, and the reader says, well, I just assumed that was Razback, And I thought it could have been. I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I do get asked a lot for sequels. And so far, I haven't done one. Um, but I could see doing a sequel, like choosing a couple of characters from one of my other stories and and doing another kind of book around it. But a series wouldn't work based on how I how I find my interest in those.
1: Well, if we, if we ever see a family popping up over and over again, having more and more terrible things happen to them, <laughs> we'll know that you've decided it's uh, it's it's time to start doing a sequel. Well, but maybe,
0: <laughs> maybe that would be a comedy. I don't know.
1: You're right. The... Um, but you're right. These these aren't police procedurals in the sense that they're they're not about the process of solving the crime. They really are about the dynamics of the characters as kind of as their lives are unraveling in a way, um, and as their secrets are being revealed. And it's it seems like a very delicate balance to keep that yeah you know, that constant slow process of unveiling happening over the course of a book. It, uh, it you know it has to be a fairly interesting piece of writing to keep that momentum going. Mm-hmm. We've all been living in our own version of a, a locked door mystery for the last couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. Although for me, it's mostly been who murdered that box of crackers and who ordered the same sweater <laughs> in three different colors. Uh, <laughs> you, you said you don't have a pandemic novel in you. Um, but then you've also said that when you sit down to write you're not sure where it's going to go so as someone who specializes in families in pressurized situations this feels like prime la Pena territory so you know is that something you would ever reconsider
0: you know what i don't know i found i find covid so boring i i have found the whole pandemic so boring i i, I it doesn't excite me enough to write a book about it i mean and also, it would mean another closed room kind of mystery, and I just swore off those because they're so hard to do. Um, I don't, I don't see it happening. I really don't.
1: Got Sorry. it. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but is that a, so? You say you know not uh, you know not another closed room. Are, uh, you know, are keeping those those scenarios fresh, the actual, the, the scenarios in which you know, the, the murder happens, the you know, kind of the crisis happens, something that's important and energizing for you? You want to keep that changing from book to book.
0: Yeah, I do. Like, I, I try to find a different way to kill someone. Um, I, I like to set things off um, in different ways. And, you know, I like to unravel different kinds of relationships. So um every book's sort of a new i want to be fresh and original with each book and you know it's hard in crime writing because everything's been done and there's only so many crimes you can look at so it's really how they're different with these different people that you can distinguish one book from another so that's that's what i try to do and that's what I find interesting i find the characters interesting and I, you know i find psychopaths really interesting and um but i also i' been coming up with this idea of, that I came up with the other the other night. I was thinking, what about situational sociopathic people? Like, I don't even know if that's a thing, but I, I'm inventing it. Like a situational sociopath. So, you know, you look at the world and you think, um, you know, people are misbehaving right now. They're, they're acting, you know, in a way differently than they would. Um, I'm thinking of, you know, anti-vaxxers who are screaming at cancer patients going into the hospital. Um, you know, and, and I just think that that's really sociopathic behavior. So maybe there's people who are normal at normal times, and then when times get different, they become kind of like a sociopath, kind of like the prison guards, you know, who, mm-hmm. who, you know, like Martin Amos said, you know, you could be a banker or a teacher all day and then happily shoot people all night um as a prison guard. So yeah, how what is it that makes people shift from within the norm to, you know, really outside the norm. And that's just something that interests me. Um, I don't even know why I brought that up, but so kind of thing that I, that I'm interested <laughs> in. And, and and, and watching, <clears throat> watching the world right now where you see so many people behaving, like I have a couple of friends who have, I think, drunk the Kool-Aid and and don't believe in COVID and don't believe in science and they think Trump was right. and. You know what? Uh, I don't know. I, I believe in science still, but you know, there's stuff going on now that's very different.
1: I'm going to remind our audience that they can uh, they can put any questions they have into the chat, and uh, and I'll be selecting uh, from those if anyone has any as we get towards the end of our segment. Tell me a little bit about uh, where you're joining us from, because my understanding is that you have maybe the best writer's retreat that's ever been.
0: Oh, oh, you mean my farm? Yes. Okay. So Nora, I was going to say Toronto because that's where I generally live. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I've been in the East end of Toronto. Lots of writers are in the East end of Toronto. We were there for, you know, 25 years, but we bought an old farm um, north of Coburg and um, it's this old Victorian farmhouse and it was completely falling apart and um, we've been renovating it now for seven years and it's almost finished I actually have an office now this is this used to be the maid's quarters and there's a there's a back staircase that goes down to the kitchen so it's good for coffee and um yeah I it's lovely here I have a view of a 100 acres out my window kind of rainy today but it's a lovely retreat and I can do all my Events remotely, so it's perfect. Really I was nice.
1: uh, as as I was preparing for this. Uh, I was reading, I think, a McLean's article from ni- uh, 2017 that uh, that had talked about you just acquiring the farm. And as someone who also has, as some of you can see from my background, like a, a bit of a penchant for old ramshackle houses, it's like I bet they're still renovating that right now <laughs> in, yeah. 20, in 2022
0: yeah it took seven years and it's still not quite finished but it's 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 livable we can live in it we haven't got our bathroom vanities finished but um there's a few other odds and odds and ends but you know what it's like and the, the pandemic slowed everything down and um you know it's been hard to get lumber and <laughs> it right. contractors, <laughs> and hard to get laborers for a whole year some of them were off work and um yeah, it's been a while.
1: Where where are you from? Do you have a uh, farmhouse. We're uh, we. we i am joining uh, uh, you and all of our uh, our guests here from uh, from beautiful Sandy Cove, Nova Scotia. Um,
0: oh, I love Nova Scotia. My family. Oh, there we works. go. Yeah. Um,
1: so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit was this transition um, when you went from writing uh, comic literature to suspense, you made a couple of big shifts at the same time. You went from kind of literary fiction, which has a very um, kind of well-defined career path in Canada, um, Mm -hmm. to more commercial fiction, which is somewhat of a rarity in in the Canadian market. You also went from small literary press to big U.S. commercial press. How... How was the contrast between those two experiences when you went from one very different kind of uh, kind of professional authorship to another kind?
0: Oh, it was huge. Um, it was like day, day or night. So when I was writing my comic fiction, I was working on a book for say four years, um, four or five years, there was no urgency to it. Um, nobody was like super, like I, I, w- I had a publisher, a small press publisher, But there's no urgency to getting the book out. Um, There's no marketing behind it. Um, You know, you either win a prize or you're you're nowhere kind of thing. Um, It's very different in commercial fiction. But the funny thing about my my literary comedic fiction was actually very, very accessible. Um, And Mm -hmm. the writing I do for suspense is very accessible. So I think I've always had a pretty commercial voice even when I was doing, um, and I remember people telling me, it's really hard to know where to put your, you know, so-called literary fiction because it's, they don't know how to market it because it's, um, it's very accessible. So how do they market it? You know, it's, um, and I find these distinctions quite false really. I mean, anyway, we we seem to do that in Canada with with wanting to label books, but um, I've always, really found that I write in a very sort of accessible way, whether I'm writing literary fiction or or suspense fiction. And um, yeah, so to go back to answer your question, you know, when you're talking about commercial fiction, it's a completely different ballgame to literary fiction. It's about, you know, can the book sell? And if they find a book that they think will be very popular, which is what happened with The Couple Next Door, then everybody jumps on it. And they bid each other, they outbid each other. And then, you know, it's, you know, um, bidding wars in different countries. And it's just a pile on. It, it's honestly, people pile on to buy your book. It's, it's fabulous for a writer. Um, and then there's the, um, the whole marketing machine starts going. And, you, you know, I have fantastic marketing with, with Viking and Doubleday and, and Transworld. And, you know, they tour you and they, um, you know, I have big signs, big billboards in England and I have, you know, you know, I just um, TV ads in England even. I mean, it's a very, very different thing. I remember having to do my own marketing pretty much when I was with a small press. Mm -hmm. So it's a very different world. You travel. I've been all over the world pretty much. I've been, you know, Dubai, China, England, New York, um, France lots and lots of countries um and you know if if your books sell you're marketed like a like someone who can make money um so it's a it's a it's a very different thing um and i wish i wish literary writers could experience it <laughs> but there just isn't the market unfortunately in canada or really anywhere for for literary fiction that there is for commercial fiction and i think what I've observed when I go to crime festivals is that people who read crime fiction, they read a lot of crime fiction. Mm-hmm. So they'll read, they won't just buy in rank and they'll also buy everybody else they see that day and they'll read all of it. They read three or four books a week. It's kind of like romance readers. I think they read a ton. And I don't know that literary writers read as many books. Maybe they do, but um, I, I think with you know crime fiction, people are very um, supportive of each other. And, um they're very they're very it's a very nice community and I think it's because we all feel that we can all help each other and they're just gonna all those prime readers are just gonna read all our books um and you know we're not competing for attention through through one or two big prizes so it's a very congenial um group of people prime writers but you know it's a tough go as a literary writer i I you know, I appreciate that it's very hard to get attention. It's very hard to sell books. It's very hard to make any money. And it's, a, it's, it's gotta be hard.
1: I have a question that's come in from Renee, uh, who asks, do you ever get scared of being in your own house?
0: Um, not because I'm a thriller writer. Um, um, I'm a bit of a timid, um, person in general. So, you know, I'll all, I haven't been alone at the farm yet <laughs> at night, so I don't know. It's very dark out here. Um, but, it's you know, if I do, it's not because of what I write. It's probably because of what I read. If okay. I, you know, I'm not afraid of what I'm in control of. So, you know, Got writing it. my own books, I never feel scared. But reading someone else's, I might.
1: And I can attest that if you live in a house in the country, <laughs> raccoons make... All kinds of terrifying noises, and, uh, yeah. and they'll freak you out no matter who you are. Uh, Jackie Morris, yes, <laughs> coyotes too. Jackie Morrison asks, "Do you have any suggestions for beginning authors?" Ah, uh,
0: <coughs> yes, I do. Um, I think it's really good to write in secret if that works for you. It worked for me. I think. I think that everybody. um, I think a lot of creative people tend to censor themselves too much. And I think if you're worried about pleasing other people or pleasing um, someone that knows that you're writing, that can put a lot of pressure on you. And and I, I think that writer's block, I don't really believe in writer's block. I think writer's block is just, you know, perfectionism getting in the way. So I think what you should do is forget about perfectionism, forget about, um, you know, people knowing what you're doing. If, if, if you are worried about people judging you, just don't tell anyone what you're doing so that you can free up your creative um, impulse. And, you know, don't worry about it being good. Like you really have to get through a bunch of, you know, crap before you get to good stuff. And I think if you start writing, you'll soon find that you'll start to find your own voice. And I think that the most important thing today, possibly it, it always was, is to find your own voice because there are so many writers and so many books And so much out there that if you don't find your own voice, then you don't really have anything sellable. So you have to write a lot and find your own voice and not be afraid to, it's really, you have to find your own voice or, or you won't get anywhere. You can't do it any other way because if you don't have your own voice, no one's going to buy you. There's a million other people out there writing their own voices. So, um, yeah, I would say write in secret, um, be disciplined about it. Write as much as you can and try to find your own voice. So write what you want to write. Don't write what you think the market would like. You know, if you want to write something that you think is so bizarre that no one would ever read it, but that's what you want to write, that's that's what you should be writing and find a way to make that bizarre thing your own. And then people will be, you know, banging on your door. I think with mine, I think when a couple came out, it was the the... The way i did it where it was so fast paced and so multiple points of view um and people just couldn't put it down and i think that was a it was fairly distinct at the time um in in domestic suspense and i think that that's what got me where i am mm-hmm. you know that and that's just the way i like to write i like to switch points of view and i like it to be really fast and i like you know twists and and so that worked for me
1: Alphonse asks, you've said you're not sure how a story is going to go, but how many seeds of stories do you have banked at any time? Oh, none.
0: I'm so bad at that. I mean, I finish a book and then I go, oh, what am I going to write about? I can't think of anything. And that's my biggest problem. I don't have a lot of ideas. Actually, no, let me change that. It's not that I don't have a lot of ideas. I'll have an idea and I'll think that, oh, yeah, so-and-so just did that or, you know, so-and-so is doing that, or that was done two years ago, or, you know, I, I have ideas, but they're not usable for whatever reason, usually that they've been done recently, or it's hard, there's so much out there, it's hard to come up with a new twist and a new way to do an unreliable narrator, and, um, you know, so, <coughs> yeah, I, I don't have a lot of really good viable ideas, so if I get one, that's the one I do that year.
1: Ryan asks, what type of nonfiction interests you? And does what you read impact your writing?
0: My favorite nonfiction? Well, there's two two favorites. One is memoirs. And I love reading about dysfunctional families. So I have a whole list of favorite um, memoirs. So there's Mary Carr's The Liar's Club, you know, very dysfunctional. Um, the Glass Castle, um, Look Me in the Eye, um, about uh, growing up uh, with Asperger's and um anything with a really dysfunctional family i find i just gobble those up the other thing i really love is um non-fiction about early explorers of the poles so anything to the north pole the south pole um i just i read them all i, I just love them and there's one i've i've ordered for christmas um andrea pitzer it is called icebound and it's about um, an explorer in i think the 1700s going to the north pole and i just I love that stuff. That and also Victorian women who who poison their husbands. That's another little subgenre that I really enjoy.
1: That's a very specific niche.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've got quite a few of all of those. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Uh, Bridget asks, what is the scariest thriller you've read?
0: Ooh. Scariest. Well, let me think. I don't read horror, and I don't read serial killer ones. But the mm-hmm. scariest—oh, maybe we need to talk about Kevin. That one. Oh, that, was you know, that's... Huh? that was scary. Huh? That was. That was. That was very scary. Um, I think probably that one, as a mother, and just that whole book—the whole nature nurture. And what happened? And what happened to the daughter with the son? That was probably the most horrific thriller. Well, it's not marketed as a thriller; it's it's literary fiction. But it, you know, it's it's a very suspenseful, horrifying book. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I'll make the last call on questions, just to uh, see if anybody has anything left. Uh, while we're waiting to see if anything else comes in, you had that unfinished third comic <laughs> novel that you were working on. Will it ever see the light of day?
0: You know, I don't think so. I don't even remember what it was about. It was about, I mean, it was it was edited with an agent. It was ready to go. And then they thought that it probably wouldn't sell. And they thought it should go to a small press. And um, I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't completely happy with it. And I just was bored with it. And that's when I decided I wanted to try writing a thriller because that was more interesting. Um, so, I, if, if I wasn't in love with that book, then I don't think I wanted to mm-hmm. go
1: there. You know. Understood. Yeah. You you made a big leap in genre before, from comic literature to thrillers. Uh, do you think that you ever might want to make another?
0: <sighs> you know. I don't know. I mean, thrillers are good for now. I, I never say never because I've actually written some kids books for my own kids as well. And they were pretty good. Um, you know, I, it's sometimes I wonder if I would enjoy comedy again. Um, but, you know, I don't know. I would have to have something that really grabbed me. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule it out.
1: And my, uh, my last question is there now that you've had a string of successful books, is there any message that you wish you could pass back to yourself to when you were just beginning as an author, any piece of advice that you wish that, uh, that you'd had when you were starting out?
0: Uh, um, well, I wish I could go back and tell my younger self, you know, start earlier because I didn't start really writing until I was much older um but when i was starting out um i might tell myself to start thrillers earlier um, sure. but on the other on the other hand i think i needed to write those two books to learn how to write and that's what made it made it possible for me to to write a thriller that was good um because i'd had that experience writing the first two books um if i could go back and give myself advice um i would i would just say stick stick with it because it's all going to work out in the end um, but I find writers who 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 are serious, they write until they make it. like I um, yeah, I think a lot of people are out there writing and, and getting a lot of rejection, but people who want to write just write even when they don't have a contract. So you know that's what I that's what I was doing. I was just um, we all start off with no contract and we all just write because we want to find out what we want to say. Um, so, yeah, I would just tell myself to keep going, not be discouraged, and be I think, disciplined. I'm already so disciplined that you know.
1: It's uh, yeah, it goes without saying. I think mm-hmm. that's a perfect place for us to uh, to wrap up. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, it's been my pleasure. It was a lovely chat.
1: And thank you to everyone who joined us on this live stream. There are many more events like this one going on at the. Toronto International Festival of Authors, which continues until the 31st. So check that out. And do not forget to buy some books and ebooks and audiobooks while you're at it uh, at Kobo.com, of course, for, for ebooks and physical copies of all the books that we've talked about today uh, at the University of Toronto Bookstore. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for watching.
0: Thank you.